VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, July the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is back in the producer's chair. Today, you'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 VOCM, which is 86-26. So it looks like there's a little bit of a reprieve from the scalding heat today. Still in the mid-20s. And just a friendly reminder that the meteorologists, the weather people, they're just delivering the weather news. I don't know how and why there's so much vitriol aimed at the, what would it be, the Eddie Shares of the world or anybody else, but strange phenomenon. I guess that's just in lockstep with what's going on this day and age. But anyway, a bit of a reprieve today. It has been difficult to sleep, that much I'm painfully aware of. And there's a conversation I had with Dave Williams a little bit earlier talking about uh, drinking enough water on the hot days. It's just one of those, feels like a throwaway line. Everybody knows you should be drinking as much water as you can. There's a way to go overboard with it. But it's curious. When the recommendations are drink between, say, three and four liters of water, that's a lot of water to drink in the run of a day. And what you see a lot of people doing, and I fall prey to this as well, you go for long stretches of time, and then you barrel back a couple of glasses in one fell swoop, as opposed to what the recommendation is to drink plenty of water in shorter intervals, as opposed to the binge drinking of a couple of uh, big glassfuls every now and then. So anyway, keep the water on board. All right, so looks like it's going to be a normal Royal St. John's Brigade this go-around. This is the final week of training. This is going to be the full-on concession stands, what you have been used to in regattas past. So that's really good news. And also some of the changes, and I think really positive changes made by the committee, for the men's crews to be able to register and row the shorter course, for women's crews to be able to register and row the long course, no longer to be referred to as the women's and the men's courses now, I suppose. So there's 70 crews ready to go. And four women's crews will will indeed take on the long course on race day. So that's brilliant. When there was two crews doing the come home here races, two women's crews rode the long course, pretty impressive times they put up, I have to say. It's a grueling initiative to say the least. But anyway, here comes the regretta. Are you into it? I am. So given the heat, it's obvious and it's always going to be the case, you know, with these dry tinderbox conditions, some fires, you know, house fires in paradise, forest fire outside of Carboneer, the Beta Spare Highway remains, remains closed, the one road in and out of the Conegra Peninsula. Some scary scenes being reported by some, you know, emergency vehicles having some issues with trying to trek over that particular stretch of highway, 40 to 60 kilometers remains closed. When we get updates from the department, we'll be happy to share them live right here on the program. But I guess it's just a friendly reminder once again that in these conditions we have to be uber careful and aware of what we're doing. Now there's nothing many of us can do about lightning strikes or what have you, but how we deal with our own disposables from a cigarette butt off into a campfire for a little mug up on the shore. So just be mindful and cautious on that front. Uh, I don't do the celebrity birthday business, <laughs> but I did just scroll past the fact that it's Mick Jagger's 79th birthday today. I don't know how old I'm going to be eventually, but to know that someone at 79 years of age is still prancing and prowling around the stage is one of the most notorious and infamous, famous rock and roll frontmen of all time. Mick is 79. All right, want to say a hearty good morning. And thank you for all that Egg Walters has done for this community over the last three decades. 
He is an absolute gem of a man. And Egg, of course, was uh, the head person at the Community Food Sharing Association. He retired on the 8th of July. Fifteen years ago, Egg Walters was diagnosed with Parkinson's. He you know, goes on to tell the tale of when he first took the job at the Community Food Sharing Association. He sat at a desk, and all he had was the desk, a phone, and a phone book. And he's grown the organization to last year they distributed about $18 million worth of food to some 55 food banks province-wide. So I know that coming behind him, there will always be good people working in the food bank world. You've heard me say many, many times that the numbers of Canadians and people in this province relying on food banks is a distinct and utter failure in governance. So I want to say thank you to all that, uh, to Egg for everything that he's done, and for those coming up behind him to try to hold down the fort. New general managers, uh, Tina Bishop, we wish her good luck in that all-important seat. But a couple of different and interesting things about Egg. So he's 74 years of age, and so he's put in a terrific shift in that capacity. When I read the news story, though, I learned a couple of things about Egg that I had no idea. So he was a member of the Navy, but an adventure sailor. He was called upon, remember years ago, I believe it was a Welchman, he was coming to the province just for some provisions to try and break a record for a transatlantic crossing in a very small boat. He ran into some adverse weather and had to come back to port, and Egg was part of the rescue crew that went out to get him. He then joined forces with that person to sail across the Atlantic trying to break a record. They were successful in crossing, but not in breaking the record. So apparently Egg has a passion for the sea, and obviously you wouldn't catch me in a small sailboat trying to trek across across the Atlantic Ocean, but you know, I just threw that in there for a bit of additional context because sometimes we do pigeonhole people as to what they do for a job, you know, and Egg, the community food sharing man. So congratulations and thank you very much, Egg, and I, I hope you're doing well. So the Parkinson's left him, you know, it became a mighty struggle to try to get through a work day, mobility and otherwise. And so uh, hopefully you're tuned in and feeling well this morning, Egg. Nothing but mad respect for me, and I would suggest most everyone in the community, for Egg Walters and everything he has done. But we can talk about food. We can talk about food insecurity. And we've talked a lot about it on this show, I think rightfully so. So there's been a couple of interesting and troubling stories regarding the agriculture industry. Whether it be the abattoir, Green Valley Beef, that has, for now anyway, closed its doors. And another farmer in the cattle business called yesterday talking about there's some additional, there's some gaps maybe in the inspection world. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. But whatever the case may be, between municipalities and the province and the federal government, knowing that we have such a firm reliance on the importation of food in this province, we have got to ensure all our ducks are in a row. And so I don't know who's going to take the lead, who's going to be the champion on this front, but whether or not it's the full complement of representatives and investigators or inspectors from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency of Canada, or Canada, yeah. Whether it be the province ensuring that everything that they need to do to encourage, to foster, and to mobilize any business proposal inside food production and distribution. Because we have got ourselves a really tricky spot here. When you look at the grocery bill and you hear the bong as the teller or the uh, clerk puts through your product at the register in the grocery store, we all squint at the screen because it's becoming so dear. So whether it be food security, insecurity, reliability of supply, and just some price point pressures, we've got to keep the conversation going. And hopefully you'll have uh, the opportunity to do exactly that today. Governments, you know, they, they look at the issues, whether it be cost of living and inflation, and there's a distinct overlap between the two. They're not exactly the same thing with the same pressures, but they talk about doing more to help. And so they find themselves in a real conundrum because if indeed we're going to have some keen focus on inflation and putting more money in people's hands, 
might not necessarily curb some of the inflationary pressure. But how do they go upon dealing with the prices at the stores? Because we really don't want government picking winners and losers. We really don't want government intervening when it comes to the possibility for profit to be generated by whether it be a grocery chain or otherwise. But while we all have a focus on the blame game of government bad, government bad, the individual politicians bad, there's also huge, I know the margins are tight in the food industry, but there's some significant profit going on all the while. They are gleefully watching the rest of us bash governments provincially federally, well, that's part of the conversation. But if you want to take on the food issue, price point, and or security and opportunities for growth here in the province, we should do exactly that today. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get her going here this morning. So speaking about some of the crushes, I'm not sure what it's like where you live outside of the St. John's metro region. So your perspective most welcome, of course, on every issue. And in this one, it's the opportunity to put a safe roof over your head. The rental crush in St. John's and surrounding area is unbelievable. We went from about a 7% vacancy rate about a year ago to just over 3% now. That might not sound and feel like a lot, but the population for this area is growing. The opportunity to try to find a rental has become even more crushing. And this was happening before the Bank of Canada raised its benchmark interest rate, which of course made the mortgage stress test even more onerous for individuals and families. But you hear from Laura Winters, the CEO at Stella Circle, and she's saying there's a new demographic that's rearing its head of societal pain about the inability to find a home is family homelessness. I'm not so sure I've ever heard that term before. You know, we've got emergency shelters, and thankfully so, but there's no agency in the province that deals with family homelessness. There's no, uh, no shelter, emergency shelter, for families who are homeless, and she sees this number growing. So when you put together the perfect storm of interest rates rising and inflationary pressures and costs to living and vacancy rates, now we've gone from what we talked about homelessness, and sometimes it's nameless and faceless. It might not manifest itself in this province and other parts, or pardon me, in the city or other parts of the province, like you would see in some of the major centers across the country. But it's very, very real. I mean, how many people don't actually fall into the categories homeless, but they are couch surfing? And they're one missed paycheck away from being exactly that, without a home. So, Laura Winters, we should actually reach out to Laura, Dave, and see if she wants to join us and talk about that particular demographic that they're seeing regarding families and the inability to find a place to shelter. Unreal. Anyway, and you know what? I don't know if there's any opportunity to say, well, this happened, and consequently, uh, individuals, landlords, private citizens have put undue pressure on the system. That's not the, uh, that's not the, uh, the goal here, but with potential landlords cashing out, you know, with the price of the homes that were pretty strong. And so they took the opportunity to cash out because it can be quite thankless to be a landlord. And then it's the conversion of so many rental properties into the Airbnbs, of which I know many. So all these combination of factors has made for a very difficult landscape on that particular front. Okay, what's this? Oh yeah, talk about some pressures. So the PUB has, uh, looked at the commodity markets. And so the price of diesel is down, furnace oil's down, stove oil's down. So around nine cents, eight cents, and eight cents respectively. No change in the price of gasoline. I'll put that out there for that thought. And in the world of the fossil fuel industry, you know, when the federal government, or Justin Trudeau in the prime minister's office, appointed Stephen Gibo, an eco-activist, 
to the portfolio of the federal environment, there was a lot of applause, loudly and quietly in many corners. And Minister Gibo, when talking about releasing the Beta Nord project, which of course has happened here, there's no business decisions been made by Equinor quite yet, but anywho, you know, his words were really quite clear is that it was going to be extremely difficult under the new evaluation parameters as to whether or not we're ever going to see another oil field approved in this country, including in our offshore. A bit of a different tone coming from the minister these days. They're not rewriting the program, so they say, but they're talking about flexibility mechanisms for the industry to be able to catch up to use said mechanisms or carbon offsets or what have you, so that the emission target of 40% below 2005 levels by 2030 He's got a softened tone and a softened choice of words regarding that. Now, I'm not so sure that means that there's going to be an easier opportunity for oil and gas companies to explore and consequently to, to produce, as opposed to allow more time and flexibility so that the companies and the industry is ready to meet these targets with the implementation of whatever, you know, some of the mitigation issues that Equinor is employing out in Beta Nord and the other infrastructure required to hit those targets, but a bit of a different type of conversation coming from the minister's office regarding some of those targets that need to be hit. And of course, the fossil fuel industry leads the way in emissions in this country, followed very closely by transportation, so no flipping switches to pretend that the world changes on a dime, even though anything that's coming from the minister's office that is not as firm as it was six months ago is being widely criticized for folks, environmental watchers, activists, and otherwise. And if you want to relate that to the weather we're seeing around the world today, we're happy to have that climate change conversation. As much as it frustrates some of you, it's real, and we have to put it on the front burner where it belongs. All right, very quickly. So the premiers across Atlantic Canada and federal cabinet ministers, some federal cabinet ministers, meeting regarding the Atlantic Growth Plan. Okay, so it's always a good idea for there to be collaboration and cooperation between the provinces, especially the four smaller provinces here on the east coast of the country. So the Atlantic Growth Strategy Committee, not really sure what some of these monies mean and how they'll be utilized, but some $20 million is going to be afforded to the four Atlantic provinces. 70% comes from ECOA. The other four provinces co-fund the remaining 30%. So $20 million to enhance international trade opportunities. $20 million split four ways is not a massive injection of cash, and nor am I really sure what individual small and medium-sized businesses will be able to avail of or how they'll be able to avail of those monies. But if you want to talk about cooperation between Atlantic Canadian provinces, which has been woefully lacking in the past, uh, we can do it. Also, especially for First Nations peoples, I did watch yesterday as Pope Francis on his penitential tour offered an apology to the survivors of the res residential schools. Some very heartfelt and seemingly sincere words offered by the Pope, more about the condemnation of the actions of individuals as opposed to the church at large. It's being received in mixed fashion across the country, which is always going to be the case. But uh, especially for First Nations peoples, if you'd like to talk about what you heard from Pope Francis yesterday, we will tackle that as well. All right, I, I heard Brian Mador in the news here. So here we are, tourism season, opportunity for later, warmer, brighter nights to get out and enjoy the great outdoors and some of the green spaces and parks in this area and, of course, across the province. And now they're going to have to close the public washrooms from 8 p.m. on because of vandalism. And then you add in the everyday event of the backhoe bandits and the ATM machines getting 
pummeled and stolen because it's so easy apparently to infiltrate the cab of one of these tractors or backhoes and to take them out on the crime spree but some sad stuff out there right we're on twitter we're vocm open line follow us there our email address is openline at vocm.com let's get a tune on the go before we come back and speak with you get ken back he was at the top of the board there dave talking about cancelli's catch all right this is a great story inside of this particular song and it goes back to 1968 And we talk about judging books by its covers and what people wear and how that leads us, so many people, including me sometimes, I admit, to judge a person for who they may be, their character, based on what they wear, which is such a frivolous, ridiculous practice for any of us to employ, especially when it comes to women. Jeannie C. Riley hit the studio today in 1968 to record this great tale, the Harper Valley PTA. I'm going full cabin party here this morning with the Harper Valley PTA. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to the phone lines, I was unaware of this happening in Bowering Park yesterday, but it's really quite an alarming story. And if you know more about it, and especially if you're the poor woman that it happened to her in your family, so this young family, so this lady was there with her seven-year-old niece and with her mother, just enjoying some time out in the sunshine and the heat in the playground in Bowering Park yesterday, middle of the afternoon, broad daylight. This man comes out of nowhere and attacks her, on top of her, humping her, moaning, trying to tear off her bikini bottoms. So awful story, obviously very upsetting and troubling and a crime. But then, of course, what also happens sometimes, now people are loath to get involved, and the bystander effect becomes very, very real. Folks who in normal circumstances in a polite conversation would say, if they ever saw anything like that, they would get involved. They would intervene. They would try to protect the woman who was being attacked violently, broad daylight, in Bowering Park. And nobody did anything. So the mother was screaming for someone to help, and they had to punch and kick the man to get him away. He wouldn't leave. And screaming for people and hoping that someone would call the police. I don't know if anybody did, but people stood by and watched. Now, I'm not to say that everybody needs to get involved at every turn, but if you're seeing someone in that sort of precarious position being attacked violently and sexually, what an extraordinary story. Very troubling. I'm really sorry that it happened to the lady. But, man, someone just shared with me. I did not see it yesterday on social media where I didn't spend very much time in the afternoon. But anyway, let's get the show on the roll. Here now, let's go to line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad. How about you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. It's a very disturbing story from Bowering Park. Man, oh man, someone just after the preamble, two women in particular, sent it to me back-to-back emails. I hadn't heard of the story until that that moment in time, but that's just dreadful. I I think uh, the Rhone Flank Establishment, they got to have, the city's getting bigger now and a lot more people moving into uh, Metro. And I think uh, city parks and maybe even transit, Metro bus, I think uh, police should be uh, stationed uh, in those areas, you know. Well, high traffic areas, whether it be the Bowering Parks of the world, uh, downtown, of course, George Street, where a foot patrol presence goes a long way to keeping people safe and keep a lid on some people's emotions and outbursts. So, you know, for me, the even the thought and the RNC has expressed this many times about getting back to more and more community policing. Well, that's the essence of community policing, you know, not necessarily on horseback, but on foot, because you just think decades ago where the police officer on the beat 
knew the shopkeepers, knew the neighborhood, knew a lot of the individuals, the children, and uh, by name in neighborhoods. And then there was a different level of respect and interaction between individuals and law enforcement. That changed dramatically over the years. Now there's a need to get back to it because that's where the police can have the most significant impact. Is you know, there's nothing slows you down on the highway quite like a police cruiser. Well, there's nothing that keeps your emotions and your behavior in check more than seeing a police officer on foot close by where you're hanging out in the park, George Street, or wherever we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, want to talk about uh, the trials uh, that took place uh, last week of Steve Bannon. Yep. And uh, he was charged with two counts of um, obstructing uh, Congress for refusing to show up to testify after being issued uh, subpoenas, uh, lawfully issued subpoenas, by the way. Uh, and he refi- he's given multiple opportunities to uh, to show up, and he just willfully refused to uh, to do so. Not only for and testimony, uh, but documents that they wanted handed over yes. to the J6 committee, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right, and he refused to hand those over, too. And uh, he had a trial, a jury trial, uh, last week. And on Friday afternoon, he was convicted on both counts. You know, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, his background, he's a retired Navy officer, too. Mm-hmm. I think he was a commander or a lieutenant commander. So he was, he was a senior uh, naval officer, right? So you would think that he would understand orders and uh, lawful orders at that. And uh, rule of law and chain of command. And when you're issued a uh, lawful lawfully issued subpoena, you got to show up. I, I just don't understand the, the mindset of him and other people like him, like Flynn, retired three-star general, and the antics that he was getting on with. And uh, it just me, leaves me scratching my head that these guys, uh, many of these guys are uh, retired military. They spent, uh, in, in the case of like Flynn, obviously, uh, his, his entire adult working life was in the military. And these guys, they just, they had this blatant disregard for the rule of law and due process under the law. And it, it has, and they, they tried to put a political spin on it that this is the woke liberal mindset that's coming after them. And there's a conspiracy around every corner. But, you know, it, this is, this is the, the essence of democracy, right? And institutional, uh, the democratic institutions. And when the, you, when the United States Congress issues a subpoena to a U.S. citizen who's on U.S. soil, you better show up. It's no different than the Canadian Parliament issuing you a, a subpoena or me. You just can't say, oh, well, you know, throw it in the garbage. I'm not going to follow that. What do you think is going to happen to you? There's a couple of different names you throw around there, and they... In Bannon's case, he knows better. He knows what he's doing. This is this is the theater that he enjoys so very much as a former top advisor, strategist inside the White House. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, Michael Flynn, on the other hand, has uh, truly and utterly lost the plot. He's straight up QAnon. I mean, he's loon. He, he just really, truly is. And Bannon, so th- the question will be, now that the jury deliberated, I think for like two or three hours, and then they came yeah. back with a guilty verdict on both counts. So what now? 
Because that becomes a big question when we talk about the unlevel playing field of the criminal justice system. Some people will pay serious prices for very, quote-unquote, petty crimes. Mr. Bannon and his role inside what is a very serious matter in the United States. So the maximum he can uh, serve is one year per. Uh, the minimum, I think, is 30 days. And I think you can bet your check that he's not going to spend a whole lot of time in prison for these two convictions. Uh, I don't know. Because, I don't know either. Uh, I guess he, we'll was on Tucker, he, he was on Tucker Carlson about two hours after he got convicted, and he was slamming the judicial system and slamming Congress. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but the, uh, the sentencing judge uh, also watches television. And uh, you might end up pissing off the judge, right? He testified in front of TV cameras and microphones outside the courthouse, but notably did not testify inside the courtroom. Yeah. He, uh, and, he, you know, he made this argument that the judge, like, uh, handcuffed him basically uh, in, in trying to mount a defense that he wasn't allowed to put on certain defenses. It, it's, it's not just I have a defense, I'm going to put it on, and let's see what the jury thinks. you got to get your defense past the judge first. The judge is the trier of law. So when you advance some legal argument, it goes to the judge first. The judge decides if the jury is going to hear that legal argument. It's called an ear of reality test. If what you're saying uh, doesn't pass the reality test, if it's legal garbage, it's not going to the jury. He failed to understand that, you know? There's, uh, there's a couple of people who send me emails on these topics uh, fairly frequently, and the one saying that, you know, the only realistic course of action here is for Mr. Bannon to now be allowed to comply and for these uh, convictions to be vacated. But of course, I think the judge said something along the, the lines that whatever he does in the future is irrelevant. This is all about what he did in October. And yeah. that's the obvious facts of the matter here. So I don't know what's going to become of it. But my intake of the January 6th committee proceedings is I, I keep an eye to it because I think it's important. But it is truly remarkable to hear some of the positions that people take politically speaking and, you know, no cross-examinations and stuff. I mean, goodness gracious. And I think people know better. You know, this, is a, uh, this is a congressional committee hearing. It's not a trial. Yeah. And so all of these things and, you know, no one's allowed to uh, speak on behalf of the, the the good things that were done by the former president, what have you. Well, I would imagine the committee would be more than happy to hear from Mr. Meadows and from the president and uh, the rest of them who are fighting this good fight in the public sphere, but he wouldn't catch them uh, inside that committee room, that's for sure. Anyway, the whole conversation regarding American politics is so unbelievably frustrating that it's hard to even know what to say about it anymore it, it's it's a lost cause people think this country's in turmoil goodness gracious count your lucky stars really uh the united states it's just uh they're on fire down there uh, when it comes to their politics and and trump now is going to mount another run for 2024 and he's putting out trial balloons right now that if he uh, gets a republican nomination and he wins in 2024 whether it's against biden or harris or anybody else that he's going to start doing mass firings of the federal civil service. And he's going to start stripping the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice and doing these huge purges of personnel in, in these uh, agencies and putting in his own people. That sounds like bootstrapping uh, totalitarianism to me. And people love it. <laughs> and you can't get enough of it. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. They can't get enough of this crap. You know, this is the erosion of, of democratic values, and it's got nothing to do with whether, whether where you are on tax cuts or 
uh, you know, tax, tax increases or tax cuts or quantitative easing or belt tightening. You know? Yeah. It's got nothing to do with that, man. You know, holding, holding institutions, law, right? yeah, holding institutions to account is important. Tearing them down is not. And so there's a big difference between the two. So even if you bring it back to this country, talk about the Bank of Canada, for instance, you know, to pretend that blowing it up is a good idea is complete and utter nonsense. Uh, you know, making sure that those at the helm, whether it be Mark Carney or Polos or Macklem or whoever, and attention to the monetary policy of the day, important conversations. Let's have them. But that's the essence of this new wave of political populism is whatever we should be afraid of, even if we shouldn't be, we're told we should be. So the boogeyman's are on every corner, and let's tear it down as opposed to make it better. Because it's easier to crush something than it is to improve something. It's intellectually lazy, it's politically convenient, and anything that's politically convenient is probably not in our best interest, regardless of who we're talking about or what we're talking about. So, you know, a bit more maturity to political conversations is woefully required. You know, and I don't really sometimes care about what happens in the States, even though it does have an impact on this country and our political discourse. But we've just got to get back to some realistic conversations because now it's almost too stupid to talk about sometimes. And that comes from, I hate to play the whole both sides coin because I think that's also unhelpful, but the extreme voices, are we should be tuning them out. I mean, regardless of what spectrum or end of the spectrum on, the extremes are really getting us to a point where it's an us versus them, regardless it's an us collectively working for us to be better and healthier and happier, and that's lost. You know, it, it, Trump uh, is mounting the 2024 bid now and bearing uh, ill health or he gets indicted and incarcerated on a criminal charge. I wouldn't hold my breath. No, I wouldn't either. But uh, he has about $300 million in a re-election war chest. And it's growing every day. People are turning all kinds of money. So this is this is what takes up all the oxygen in your room. It's the money. Because he can buy ad space sure. in, in, in top markets. And uh, he gets his message out. And it doesn't matter whether he's the uh, tail end or the 5% of the bell curve. That 5% is driving the other 95%. You don't need 50% plus one uh, of, of the population to be crazy in order to have a civil war. It's just a very small amount of people. They start something and it just festers, right? People out there are cheering for it, hoping for it. I, anyway, Colin, uh, what a way to start my day. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> Appreciate Colin your time. Downer, always ready to give an opinion, you know? Appreciate the time, Colin. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Patty. Okay. Cheers. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Ken's in the queue. Kent Sully's Catch a Cod. We'll find out what's going on right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Hey, welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Ken, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Good morning, sir. Uh, Patty, I'm a fisherman here in Harbor Grace, and <clears throat> the, the fishery opened here on a Sunday. We were allowed to set nets or haul nets on Sunday. Uh, we were told Saturday by the processor not to go out because they weren't buying any fish in Conception Bay Sunday or Monday. They were buying, there's one processor, not all. The processor that I sell is what I'm talking about now. Okay. So <clears throat> they said they weren't buying any fish in Conception Bay Sunday or Monday. They were buying it from Trinity Bay. They were going to come here on Tuesday and Wednesday and buy from the fishermen here. Then uh, I think they're going to Bonavista Bay for two days. So <clears throat> I don't understand why a plant or a processor 
can tell the fishermen when they got to go and and how much they can bring in. Another processor here got their bo- uh, boats put on a catch limit. Now, we got a quota, a small quota, only 3,850 pounds a week, but they got the boat put on 2,000 pounds. I don't know if that's a day or a week or what, but some co- some processors got their boats put on 2,000 pound trip limit. So I guess that's a day. I don't know how that works. But right now, I, they were supposed to buy from us today, but today is a gale of wind here. There's nobody out. So we got tomorrow to, catch the, to set the nets and catch it. Then they're moving on to moving on to Bonavista Bay. Yeah. Okay. So with so, the with the boat limits. So if just one second, Ken. So if the processor would say to you, okay, so we're putting limits in place, whether it be boat limits or we're going to buy in Trinity Bay this day, Bonavista another day, is it all about whatever volume they can actually handle in the plant, as opposed to all hands going out and getting their thirty-eight fifty and expecting the processor to be able to handle all that volume all at the same time? Is that the rationale that that's behind it? Yes. The plants can't handle the amount of fish that's uh, been able to be bought in. Right. So, this, this is what I'm saying. Why can't the government issue some more proce- processing license? I'm sure there's some people, some plants here that would like to have it. Or, if nobody wants a processing license, bring in a boat and put it in anchored in the bay here and take over side sales. They've done it before. Oh, say, say that part again? Do what? Well, years ago, I don't know if you can remember, years ago, they used to have a Russian boat in some parts taking, buying fish from people over the side. Over oh, the okay. Side sure, yeah. So I don't know if that could be an option. If the plants can't handle it right now, a short-term option would be that, over the side sales, until, unless the government is going to issue processing licenses so they can handle all this <coughs> or this bit of fish that they got to catch. Right now, it seems like to me, when I'm after hearing here the last few days, that all the fish, or most all the fish landed around here, got to go to Arnold's Cove. To ice water? Yes. Okay. Which is a year-round cod operation, if people are unfamiliar with ice water seafoods. Uh, and, of course, we had that issue, too, with the, the whole issue regarding Russia and the Ukraine and where they were buying and where they were selling, but that, that's neither here nor there. So is there a bit of flexibility for the harvester to be able to wait to take their time to bring in their individual quotas? Because I know when the price-setting panel did their work, there was a price up until the end of July and then another price from August to the end of the season. Prices are up. I mean, nowhere where they should be, but do you have time to make sure that you get it and bring it in to get it graded hopefully at the A status and sell it for what I think, I think is 97 cents a pound? Well, I can't speak for everybody, but uh, I'm sure the fishermen, when the fish is here now, like there's a good sign of fish around here, yeah. they'd like to go and get it now instead of waiting around later. Some people want to get it in the fall, but then it mightn't be so thick. Fish mightn't be so good then. The fish will be good, but it mightn't be so the catch limit amounts uh, mightn't be so good. So I don't know. That's just hard. That's depends on who you're talking to about that, I guess. I suppose, yeah. So the catch rates look good right now? Yes. Judging by the food fishery people, they said there's lots of fish. And in shore water, you can look down and see it swimming and rolling in the beaches out here and everything. What and do you make? Yeah. I haven't seen it myself, but I'm after hearing a lot of people say they were down here in Harbour Grace in the nighttime watching the fish come right ashore, right up in the beach, chasing Cabron. I haven't, I haven't been down the water this year, so I haven't seen it. But the anecdotal evidence that I've heard is pretty strong. Uh, what do you make of the price this year? So I think it's about a 30-odd percent increase year over year, especially for grade A, which I think is $0.97, cents, and after August, somewhere over a dollar. Yeah, well, price can always be better than that. I mean, dollar a pound, geez, I got dollar a pound for a fish 35 years ago in Labrador. Yeah. So the price never moved very much on it. 
Well, I mean, that's for sure. So there's also a tricky piece of that business, too, that the people buying it get to also grade it. And there's a long way between grade A and grade B, a huge drop-off. So was it 97 cents all the way down to maybe 39 or 40 cents or something? Well, I don't know, Patty, because I'm, I haven't been at this fishery here, around here. This is only the second year at it because I fish it offshore, really. Okay. And this is a license that my father had. I got to took over now for trying to build it up for when I retire or something to fool with. But <clears throat> what I'm seeing here, there's going to be a hard way to make a living here with, with this. You're the plants are telling you, you can go today, you can't go, you got to go tomorrow, and you can only bring in this. And like last year, I was at the squid for a few days. We got in one trip of squid, and then they said, uh, we're not buying from you today, we're only buying from our own boats. Now, I don't know who, what their own boats is. I don't know what that means. But the processor I was selling to wouldn't buy my squid. They told me not to go out because they were only buying from their own boats. Mm-hmm. So, so I lost income there. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what they always mean by our own boats, too, because the whole concept of the controlling agreements and stuff, that's supposed to be gone by the wayside. So maybe it's their own boats where they're steady suppliers that they buy from year over year for years on end. I don't know exactly what one processor means by it or, uh, as opposed to another one. But So what are you going to do? Are you going to just, uh, for lack of a better word, take your direction from the processor to ensure you've got a home for your catch? What's the next play? Well, right now i got no choice. I got, um, I'm not going to today because... Uh my opinion is that not, the weather is not in favor for us to do that. Uh, I can probably go out and set the niche, but I need to haul them. And if I leave it out and I can't get out for the weather, the fish will be spoiled. Yeah. So I'm going to wait till tomorrow and probably set the niche tomorrow morning and try to get them tomorrow evening and try to sell that Wednesday. And uh, Thursday, well, they're supposed to be going to Bonavista Vista Bay. So if I don't get the quota tomorrow, I'll, I'll last out again. Ken, I wish you good luck with it and uh, safe trips. Yes, thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, it's, a, it's frustrating. But, of course, if you listen to a processor now, they'll tell you. If we just said, okay, everybody go get what you can based on your own individual quota, come to the wharf, we'll take care of all of it. And, of course, they won't be able to. So at that point, I guess we have fish spoil as opposed to try to have some sort of orderly process where all hands get... Get satisfied, you know, the harvester themselves and the processor. But the price is up around 30%, I think, especially on the grade A number, which is still, when you think about it, I mean, 97 cents for the greatest white fish in the world. If you went down to a grocery store in St. Petersburg, Florida, now I know there's lots of mouths to be fed on the way as you distribute the uh, the product and see any secondary processing, what have you, but you go into a grocery store in St. Petersburg, Florida today to buy a pound of salt cod, well, 20 bucks. At the wharf, they get 97 cents. Let's take a break. Come back. There's a couple of gentlemen who like to uh, offer their reflections on Egg Walters and another couple of topics. So we'll hear from them right after this. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line one. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Fine show this morning. Thank you, sir. Thanks for your time. What's on your mind? Well, a little tip on, on, on carrots before I get to Egg Walters. Uh, a little tip on what, sorry? A little tip on, on, on carrots, how, 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 how to increase your, your crop. Uh, most people uh, sow them by hand, as, as I do. Some do strips, and you, could, you, you won't have them uh, as thick. But uh, you can transplant carrots. Some people say you can't, but if you do it very carefully, you can. And you can stick them in almost anywhere on a small plot of land, right, between garlic or, or whatever. You, you, you just dig down like, like an ice cream cone on either side of, of the thing and make sure you get all the root hair. And... Uh, 
put that in a hole and cover it up gently so you don't break the root here and you can get uh, so all those carrots you thin out and throw away you can rescue many of them just thought uh, I'd throw with that tip sure fair enough Hig Walters uh, that job he had uh, with the food thing that was uh, a volunteer job uh, am I right I don't have a definitive answer. I think there was a stipend associated with it, but uh, Egg Walters did not get rich at the helm of the Community Food Sharing oh. Association. That much I can tell you. I, I think he should receive the Order of Newfoundland. That guy did did, did yeoman service, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that he's ill, and uh, i just like to wish him well. Me too. Uh, I've had the great fortune of being able to meet many times and speak with and work with Egg Walters over the years, uh, including through VOCM and VOCM Cares, what have you. But he's a remarkable man. The effort required to put uh, to put the Community Food Sharing Association where it is today is monumental. And no argument coming from me, the Order of Newfoundland, the Order of Canada, for people like Egg, just imagine if we didn't have their horsepower, their determination and effort, just how further behind we'd be. So he's an amazing fellow. I wish him nothing but the best. Yes. Um, I'd like to speak about, uh, uh, tie in a, a, a number of things there that are kind of related. I hope I don't ramble on it. The, the environmental movement, I would say since 1990 to the present, would, would, would be the time when uh, things started to move and we started to hear a lot of these things about uh, what was happening with our planet, right? I can forgive uh, uh, people, uh, not so much educators, but I can forgive the average Joe from 1990 to 2010 for not uh, being up on this and not understanding the problem and so on. I can't understand anybody from 2010, to, to use a round number, to, to, to the present for not getting what the heck is going on uh, with, 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 with our climate. It seems like it takes you have to hit home with people. I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, Russell Wangerski had a great article uh, several years ago re- regarding warming of waters around Newfoundland, or well, anywhere, but uh, Newfoundland he was talking about, and the acidification of, uh, of, of the oceans. Both these things can, can, can eliminate our fishery in two or three years. A soft crab uh, w- w- would be in soft-shelled crustaceans, would be one from the acidification. And the warming of the water can, 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 can uh, uh, send fish stocks flying. And uh, I guess it takes, it's going to take that kind of a thing for people to, 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 to realize how serious it is and that it can hit here in Newfoundland and already is. I'll give examples of the flooding in, 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 uh, th- that we've added, plus forest fires and so on. But it just uh, galls me a little bit that, that, that people don't take it seriously enough and, and you don't get enough, uh, very many except Tom Davis and a few others uh, on this program uh, anyway. I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, I'm happy to talk about anything, as you know. The <laughs> yeah. Some of the issues, I think, are... Let me restart that. Some of the words used by environmental activists and others are not being thrown back in the face. You know, it's things like in 1975, someone said this, and now it's being used as a way to deny that the climate is changing quickly and for our collective detriment. So, uh, again... 
If you don't think it's real, then just look at the entities who sh who have been now well understood to be pushing their own version of what's happening with climate and weather and try to interchange them when in fact that's not even helpful at all. The oil companies, they know it's real. They know the role they've played. They know the role that fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions have played. So if you don't trust the oil companies, they've said it out loud. They know full well. It's been documented in uh, congressional hearings. They know what their role is. They know what's happened over the uh, over the decades, they know how much money they spent to deflect their role in climate change, which is obviously very real. I don't even know why this conversation still persists as to whether or not it's real. We could talk about what we do and how we do it, but the fact is irrefutable that it's actually happening. I don't know why we're still having that kind of conversation. And then even to get into ways to deal with and combat it. You know who else knows it's real? Insurance companies. <laughs> They'll tell you quite clearly that they know what's happening. They see it every single day. And as ratepayers, pre premium payers, we all should be aware that the oil companies and insurance companies, they know. Now we get down to the difficult conversation about what to do about it. And you know, the carbon tax has become a political whipping post as opposed to a public policy. The party that used to prefer a price point on pollution and a carbon tax were the conservatives because that's exactly the, the background of the party. Market mechanisms, the free market, price point pressures. Stephen Harper was a champion of the carbon tax. Now it's not about policy, it's about politics, which has derailed so many important conversations. Well, part of it is people like Rex Murphy, who a lot of people look up to, and Andy Wells, who's now passed away, and so on. People uh, very influential come on and, and keep spreading disinformation. That certainly doesn't help. But a quick word on, on Trudeau and liberals regarding uh, Newfoundland. Sure, go ahead. He gets it in, 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 in the neck all the time, and rightfully so in some cases. But I'd like to remind people uh, that, that I don't think any other government, especially a conservative government, would have done the following things for, for, for Newfoundland. And I'm no flaming liberal. I voted all, all three or four parties, including Green. Um, when we were, when we were at, at uh, the mercy of the bond agencies, we went to, uh, to the Bank of Canada, and, and I give the Liberals uh, credit on that one to do our borrowing. That was last year. I'm not sure what's happening this year. When Beta Nord was up, and it could have been uh, easily dismissed, we got uh, Beta Nord. And when we got rate mitig mitigation for the mistakes that Danny Williams, partly the federal government as well, we got help there. So... I find it hard to believe that so many people in Newfoundland think he's a devil uh, when he's friends with Fury, and uh, we've actually done quite well under a liberal government. And as far as the environmentalists, a lot of them made his guts because he, haven't gone, he hasn't gone far enough with uh, 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 cutting greenhouse gases and so on. So the guy gets it in the neck from both sides, and I fail to understand why he's such a, a devil for Newfoundland. Anyway. Well, some of the shine has gone off the Prime Minister. I'll go, I'll say that much, and I think that's fairly obvious, even inside his own party. I think they were coming to that understanding. And yeah. the next steps for leadership, I think, is probably a conversation that's ongoing and who the best candidate is. Some people will say it's uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, the Minister of Finance. And I mean, I don't know where the party's going, but I think it's just much like some of these issues here now. The political scientists don't necessarily have the best takes on it, the social scientists do. You know, 
because we're not talking about policy anymore. This is all about emotional attachment about people's so-called the characteristics. And uh, liberals all of a sudden is a bad word. Conservatives is the conservatives are the devils in some people's minds. Not really based on what we're seeing or what's happening, but just based on emotional reaction. And I, I think we see that more and more regardless of who you support, what party you support, what your ideology is. That's what was been boiled down to here now is the cult of personality. And that's overtaken anything to do with actual conversations regarding policy. And policy is actually what makes the, the world go round. Policy is how, what impacts your life, not whether or not someone wears nice socks or doesn't or has a stupid haircut or does not. None of those things actually matter, but that's the keen focus of too many. And consequently, we play this emotional whack-a-mole as opposed to get down to brass tacks. Uh, last word to you, Charlie, before I got to go. Well, Dennis O'Keefe, who was advocating for bait and order, and, and, and I agreed w- w- with him that we should get it, when when that was passed and so on, yeah, I may have missed it, but I didn't hear any kudos from from uh, and, and apologies after things that that that, that he said. Yeah, I, I think he should have acknowledged at least. He, he, you know, being a clone of Andy Wells is not necessarily a good thing in 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 this uh, day and age. I, I can't recall what uh, Mr. O'Keefe had to say on the heels of it. Uh, I don't know, and he's always welcome to share his opinions on that and anything else, like everyone else is here on the show. Charlie, I'm off to the news. Appreciate the time. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, and this is not about liberals or Tories or Dippers or Greens or Rhinos or Marijuana Party. We have got ourselves into it's a cult of personality discussion far too often. It just is. And believe it or not, people's personalities is about getting votes. People's personalities don't drive policies. But we kind of lose sight of that because policy is boring, right? That's the boring thing. Emotions and personalities and those types of connectivity uh, issues that we talk about in politics, that's the exciting part. That's the flashy part. Actually getting in a room and beating out a decent policy, too boring for too many. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go line number four. Vic, you're on the air. Morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Good morning to you. Hi, Miss Show. <laughs> well, it's good <laughs> to be back. Thanks, Vic. You're having a great show there. Thank, Thank you, you for taking my call. Uh, yes, uh, your, my, your previous caller there uh, 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 mentioned Mr. Edge Walters. Uh, yes, I'm aware. I think I read in the page paper yesterday he's retiring. I certainly wish him a happy retirement. I think he's me. He's he's uh, I think I met him once casually. A wonderful humanitarian. He did wonderful work with the food bank. And as you indicated, I think he's to really demand that spearheaded and uh, promoted. And uh, it's what it is today. And certainly a successful. Um, organization, uh, and I wish him best in, in his, uh, his retirement. And uh, the previous call I mentioned, he sh- I think uh, Mr. Walter should be uh, inducted into uh, Newfoundland Hall of Fame. I, I think I certainly agree with, with that, really. And again, I wish Ed the best in his retirement. Yeah, Ed is a great man, no great doubt. Man, yes, right. Another thing I like to I like to mention was um, I was somewhat disappointed that the. Uh, Pope's visit to Canada, and his itinerary did not include Newfoundland. And while I'm thinking about it, of course, because of Mount, the Mount Cashel abuse, I think, which was 
uh, came came to light, and I think it was in the 80s, and I think it was the Mount Cashel orphanage um, sexual abuse by the uh, Christian brothers, etc., uh, that really opened up the world. I think it was a catalyst, really, opened up the world, and not only in Newfoundland and Canada, but the whole world as to the um, sexual abuse and actually abuse of children in our society and in the world. Uh, at large, actually. So um, I don't know why. I, it seems to me that Newfoundland has left every game. Now, uh, some of them may say, well, he's just come to, to Canada to uh, apologize to indigenous people, of course. Now, uh, also, there were indigenous people, uh, uh, children in that Mount Cashel orphanage. There are, and there were four residential schools in this province as well. Uh, that's right. So, uh, so but I don't, you know, I can't speak for the papal staff and what they think is the right, play, the right thing to do or right place to go but of course we're also talking about an elderly very frail man at this moment so there was going to be limited stops uh, on this particular visit to Canada so I don't know the right place or the wrong place to do any of these things but yeah. it was quite a scene yesterday I did watch some of it and um, I'm not so sure what people made of the apology for me seemingly very sincere and heartfelt chose some very powerful words to use now of course he really did condemn the actions of individuals he didn't really hear the church and the pope take ownership of the church's role at large it was basically boiled down to the individuals that we're talking about that were at the the residential schools themselves but anyway that's splitting a hair uh, but yes, i think it's an important I, I one agree. yes yes uh, the other point uh, your previous caller uh, charlie i think it was Mentioned, uh, I think, global warming, uh, etc., or climate change. Well, I think now I've been on this part of the province now since 1989. I'm sorry, 1959. Uh, I'm originally from the West Coast, and we have much warmer weather on the West Coast, Newfoundland. And uh, I, I think this is one of the warmest uh, uh, summers I've experienced on the East Coast. So I can see a considerable change in the, in, in the weather here in, here in St. John's. In fact, uh, it's been affecting me. I think it affected me the last couple of days on a personal uh, a personal note, I suppose. I got to the point I could hardly eat. eat actually, it was so warm on Sunday and, and Saturday. So I, I think, again, now I know... Uh, I've always been an advocate of, I'm an environmentalist, I think we were brought up that way, actually. That was the way our dad brought us up and mom. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, it seems that human nature or, human, or mankind, it seems that we do not really, uh, really get involved or become seriously involved with anything that's going to, I think, have an advance or a or sort of a negative, uh, a negative uh, output on our, our way of life or livelihood. So I think now I can see a lot of things that's happening. But again, I, I think uh, we're not. We still. I think we need to have. Uh, we. I think we wait till the last, the last minute, or, or we're. I think we're almost in peril with certain things before we act. So I think. Uh, I think we probably will, if it's not too late, uh, do something about the climate change. Of course, I wasn't in favor of uh, being ignored, and uh, even though it's uh, made a lot of money for Newfoundland, etc. And uh, looking back at all the money we've had previously from Hibernia and such, and the other oil wells have had, uh, I don't think I don't think it's, it's really going to help us in any way, unless. Um, I think someone mentioned we should have, I think, a heritage fund. I think they call it a heritage fund. 
I know they have one in in Calgary. Uh, so if we're going to get oil oil from this or monies from the uh, Bay of North, I don't see anything in writing that we're going to have a heritage fund. Well, no, actually, the Conservatives campaigned on that uh, the last provincial election go around. My thought, I look, it conceptually makes a lot of sense. I mean, you talk about the sovereign fund in Norway and the billions and billions and billions of dollars, the heritage fund in Alberta, which they pretty much depleted at this moment. But I think if we're realistic and you stand back and look at where we are uh, fiscally, how can we possibly put money away while we're borrowing to just make ends meet, to pay the bills, to hit the payroll? So I get why it sounds like a great idea, but just imagine putting a billion dollars in a bank just to have to borrow a billion dollars to service oh, yes, the debt. I do agree. I do agree, Patty, yes. But obviously, then, I think we have, I've seen something there uh, recently in the paper, I think it was uh, from the Fraser Institute, of how actually, I think it, point, I think it was pointing the finger at Newfoundland, that uh, we should get our financial house in order. And I think it gave some uh, uh, some sort of advice as how to actually do that. So, I, 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 again, I, I know uh, you said, I think they might have mentioned the, the sovereign fund or a heritage fund during the election. But I've seen nothing in writing as to how to, you know, how, we still haven't seen, I haven't seen anything in writing as uh, actually what, the, you know, what we owe and how they're dealing with it. You know, what sort of a plan is that? I see nothing in writing. I know we're, we're bore, why we bore in all this stuff. Uh, you know, the, the common Joe, uh, really, here in this province, we do not know or do not see where the money is going. You know, and for the, so I think they mentioned our population. For our population, I think they said, they indicated we're spending three times more than we should per per person. Well, I don't know. It's you a know difficult I mean? measure to make. Yeah, it's being fiscally responsible, of course, is extremely important. Obviously, so. But I think if we look around and see the the shortcomings in the people's uh, affairs being attended to, even if it's just look very quickly for me because I got to get to the break, and I'll okay, give you the last I, word. Uh, thank you for taking my call, Patty. Just one second. I'll I'll give you the last word, Vic. We don't necessarily have a problem with how much money we have. We have a problem with how we distribute the money. You know, even if people look at things like health care and say, well, let's just keep spending on it. It'll get better. If that was the case and there'd be the best, best health care system in the province and this country would have the best health care system in the world. But unfortunately, we don't because if money was the answer, we'd be more further ahead. We spend about a third of the budget on health care. The positive health care outcomes are not in line. People are struggling to get services, find a doctor, get a procedure attended to. So it's not just about money. It's about how you spend the money. That's my thought on healthcare well, in particular, yes, and that's a third of the budget. Oh, so yeah. last I, I word, Vic, go ahead. You, Patty. They, do, they, 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 they did mention in that report now that we have to look at how we're spending our money. Again, I thank you for taking my call. Wish you the best for the summer. Same to you, Vic. Take care. Thank you. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number one, Gail, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Do you have us on speaker, Gail? If so, would you mind picking up the receiver? Sure. Okay. That's much better. Thank you. Yes. I know I had you under the speaker phone, so that's the clothesline. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure I didn't miss my call. Um, I was just wondering if you have any information on a behavioral aids or where I could find one, or if you know anyone who is out there that's a behavioral aid that I could reach out to. So you're looking for a, a physical behavioral aid or someone who's a counselor? I'm looking for someone who can help the ch- help a child. Okay. A relative of mine. 
So I don't know how deeply you want to get into what kind of help you're looking for. I can try to point you in the right direction if I knew what we're so we're talking about. Is there a, a formal diagnosis in place, or you have yes. a behavioural issue? Okay. Yeah, he was diagnosed with autism when he was two, but uh, there's times he's the best kind, and there's other times he'll pinch, scratch, bite, do these kind of things, right? Or he'll just grab you if you don't go to McDonald's right away. He'll grab you while you're trying to get there, and you know you can almost be killed on the on the road if if you're not careful. And I was just wondering if uh, there's anyone out there that's a behavioural aid that can work with the child. Fair enough. Is it a school-age child? Yes. He's okay. going to grade four. So does he have supports in place at school? He has supports in place at school. He was the best kind in school. And when school closed, uh, I had him into a program. And um, the child management specialist took him out of it because uh, the little girl that was working with him wasn't able to handle him. So uh, now he's not into anything. And all he wants is just playing with his iPad and playing with uh, things around the door and he, he doesn't want to go out much at all, only to McDonald's. And when he's in the house, all he wants to do is pinch and scratch when he gets this little spurt. He can be the best con one minute and the next minute he can just like, like snap your finger, come grab you. Have you dealt uh, with the Autism Society directly? Uh, I have, but I haven't been talking to them lately, no. Okay, well, it's always a good resource. Uh, I don't know if they'll have a specific program, or maybe they will, or maybe they'll be able to point in the right direction. So I would start there. And also with behavioral specialists, maybe another idea that just pops into my mind is if you talked with people at the school district because there's some uh, programs that run throughout the summer where they might be able to put you in contact with maybe the support staff that your uh, the child has at school might be able to put you onto a program that occupies some of the summer months as well so those are the two places i would start i don't know how easy it's going to be to get in touch with the support staff or the management uh, inside the school district but between the autism society and them they'll be able to point you in the right direction to get you some very specific uh, people who you should talk to who could be helpful to you. I know what the number is off the top of my head to the Autism Society because we call them so often. I can give you that if you'd like to start with them. Yeah, that's 722-2803. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so other than that... I'm not so sure. Like the, the clinical psychologist, of which Dr. Janine Hubbard is a good friend of this program, she may indeed be able to point you in the right direction for some very specific help for uh, people on the spectrum. So it, the child's verbal. Pardon me? It, the, the, the child is verbal, speaks. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, you can talk, yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious because, of course, you know, the spectrum is so broad that it's yes. Um, yes. No, no one person with autism is the same as another person with autism, or yes, that has autism. Okay, so, Dave, can we put uh, Gail on hold and maybe give her Dr. Hubbard's number as well? That might be a resource for her. So, between the district and Dave, I'm going to put you on hold to speak with Dave Williams again. We'll see if we can put you in touch with Dr. Janine Hubbard. She's a clinical psychologist. Maybe she'll have uh, very specific information or advice for you as well. How's that? That sounds good, sir. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold. Good luck, Gail. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, and Gail is on hold. We'll see if we can't help her out. Let's keep rolling here. Go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, sir. It's, uh, it's interesting that, um, that both you and Anthony Germain both had took holidays and both had COVID and both have commented on how it's given you a different perspective. 
hurt him yesterday back from his holidays and hit him pretty hard and hit his wife for the second time pretty hard as well so yeah I don't even know if I was clumsy or not trying to make the point my point was that far too many people just have dismissed it as it's nothing and it's just a call and can we all get over it but of course for someone who might have a family member immunocompromised or seniors for parents or whatever it is dismissing things is not helping at all I've long said you know not being fearful but just being mindful is the approach that I take but now that I've had it I just somehow feel differently about talking about it because I now know quite clearly that inside of my own family it hit us all differently and so that's the reality that we should acknowledge is that it's what it's a cold for some it's serious for others it's deadly for others so let's just be a bit more mindful that everybody's different and it's going to hit people differently as opposed to well it's just a cold or it's a death sentence it, it is for some it is not for others so let's just be mindful of the fact that it hit me differently than it hit my wife than it hit Nick than it hit my buddies so that's it. I know I know three healthy people, one 25, one 43, and one 56, who all have strong um, long COVID impacts. And that, you know, that's the other part of the circular argument when we when we don't. I just want to I just wanted to mention that because it's it's still there, obviously, and and it hit, it's still doing its thing. Yep. Um, I did, I missed Charlie's talk, so I don't want to I don't want to repeat anything he said. But you know, I I do feel this collective action, and and it is. You know, a lot of times in Newfoundland, we have such mild, relatively speaking, weather that uh, we don't really, it doesn't resonate when we see Australia or, or, or you know, or the west coast of Canada or, or, or Europe getting baked or Asia now, China, you know, getting, getting these really, really extreme uh, heat events or stronger storms. And but yet when we do experience like did last year on the west coast of Newfoundland with those heavy rain events that turned out not to be as bad as they could have been. When we see, when we experience these short heat waves that we've just had, <clears throat> just drives home to me that collective responsibility that each and every one of us can make a difference. And it, and it's the little choices, and it's the things that we have come to take as part of our lives that were not part of our grandparents' lives, and we need to find a way to adapt and quickly. Like we don't have generations. I, I have two young employees; they're in their twenties and early, actually late late teens early 20s and they can't wait to get a pickup truck and explain to myself like we rely on like there's this this misbelief that the younger people are going to save us like everybody wants to put it off on someone the government's going to save us the younger people are going to save us well they want what we have and they want more and uh and there's a lot of collective responsibility and people like you and i in this age group we're the ones who are you know probably have the most ability to make a difference and it's a lot of responsibility i feel it every day but i just want to drive that point home to all the listeners and to everybody out there we got to act quickly well it's i mean the the ravages have happened in this country i mean we've had droughts and extreme heat and the say for instance british columbia last year 30 percent yield decrease yield in the grains in the country last year based on drought we've seen what it means for severe weather events i don't know if if you know maybe it hasn't hit as close to home as it required for some but even if say for instance you are concerned with uh 
the fishery. Well, absolutely, it's playing an active role. Some of the things we cannot control, the the temperature of the water, sea ice, and what's that meant for plankton and phytoplankton and things that are a big part of the food chain and the ecosystem and the balance is now different than it ever was before. So regardless of who you are, it hits in so many different areas and arenas that there's ample opportunity for what's important to you, where you are, your your role, your your life, your emissions, your carbon neutral uh, approach or what have you. It's everywhere. So I don't know why denying has become a real political sport, right? As opposed to pragmatic conversations about what we do at the individual level, the corporate level, the governmental level, because that's kind of been lost in the the fight between it's real and it's devastating or it's not real and carbon tax is stupid or we've just kind of missed some of these conversations and consequently we find ourselves in a terrible place we seem to have all the technology and all the information to be able to see it like very very obviously and um and it doesn't help it on some level just distracts us and you know i just you know whether it's our health or our environmental situation or our fiscal situation two callers ago a gentleman talked about a heritage fund and i I just kind of laughed you know because you know right now we're in probably the best time we're going to experience for a long, long time as as the long-term and short-term impacts of all the stuff that's going on around us hit us. And, and you know, there is no appetite in this province to do, create a sustainable province. I mean, I hear responsible people like you and Paul Lane calling for expansion of our ag- agricultural production. Farming is a capital-intensive, big dollars, like the fishery. And time, like incredible investments of time, sacrifices that on right across our society, uh, this province, people want more and more leisure time. We're seeing that that's the impacts that we're seeing in whether it's taxis or it's transfer truck drivers or nurses or doctors. I mean, the collaborative teams are great, except we're taking general practitioners who are business owners, and then we're going to roll them into the public service, and then they're going to get their five or six weeks of vacation. And then you, everybody says, well, of course, they deserve it or else they're not going to work. And, and that's true. But who's going to look after everybody? Who's going to grow the food? I mean, I'm, I was thinking I was doing really good this year with my employees, but I've just been running into this, like there's just a general malaise of, of work ethic, like choosing leisure over work. And it's, it goes right from the very top to the very bottom. It isn't just service workers. It's it's not just taxi drivers. You're seeing it in the hospitals. I mean, the concept, I've spoken to nurses who worked, have worked a long time. And in the old days, they said there was one person who did the scheduling and everybody worked together. The nurses collaborated to make sure that Jane had got to her wedding and John got got his little break when he needed one and everybody worked together. But now it's it's managers who have assistants who nobody knows, who you know, everybody's working there. You know, if you're a, a, you know, many people in the government, even though we're a seven-day-week province, many day in the government, many people in the government work it from nine to five, or in the summertime they go to summer hours, and you know now they're working a half an hour less, and and that's all fine. And everybody says, well, people deserve that. Why shouldn't they deserve it? Well, I don't know who's going to keep this place going. Like that's the way we. Everybody's got to look around and say, what the heck is going on? Well, what's going on is everybody because human beings will choose leisure overwork. That's just common sense. Yeah, Canada has a productivity issue, uh, and that's not saying something that people aren't aware of. I take a little bit of a different uh, tactic uh, on this one, or tact. 
You're right. And I wish I had more free time. I wish I had a better balance in my world. And I think I speak for just about everybody who's at the age majority who is working for a living. Knowing that that's true, if we are talking about productivity and work ethic and attitude and what have you, is when employers understand that and they incorporate that understanding into how they operate their business, the outcomes are clear. Efficiency up, productivity up, profitability up. So I think there's both sides of the coin can work towards a better balance and all the while be more productive and consequently more profitable. It happens. Even if we talk about something as fundamental as the four-day work week, where it's been experimented with, it has worked, not just for individual corporations, but for regions, for countries. It just makes sense. If you're at more, if you're more content and you have more time, then consequently the levels of stress and burnout, they are they're brought down and consequently you're a better employee with a better attitude more productive and consequently the company does better so striking the balance is not just about encouraging or telling people that you're lazy you have to do better it's about understanding the realities of life and putting those practices into place into play where you where you live and where your business is and things work out don't take it from me just take it from the experiments that have happened in real life about acknowledging the balance you know whether it be provision of childcare, some flexible summer hours the ability to work remote, the four-day work week. A combination of these things makes for a better workplace and consequently a better a staff and a, and a better workforce. Your thoughts before we have to go? Well, I know personally as someone who's working like 19-hour days and who his business is structured around weekends and evenings, just like a lot of the other problems we're, we're seeing, like nurses, like doctors, like um, taxi drivers, like transport truck drivers, like a lot of the people, farmers and fishermen. Um, it's really nice for the people who get paid regardless of whether we borrow a billion, three billion, whether we have $50 billion worth of debt. Like, it's really nice for the people who get paid anyway, who are plugged in directly or indirectly to the government, either because they get a check directly from the government or their company they work for, in a lot of the professional cases, get a vast majority of their profit directly, directly from government business. Uh, but as we have less and less businesses, because every business owner that I talk to says their kids don't want any part of their business. They recommend their kids don't have any part of their business because why would they go work for the government? Um, and that's where we're going. And I see it firsthand with young people. I, we see it. We see it anecdotally and directly with what's happening in, in the services that we all rely on to live. And it's really good to have like two groups of people, those who are unimpacted by end of the world event like COVID, they keep getting their paychecks. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter how much money we borrow. There's no connection within budgeting provincially or federally for that matter. I mean, you know, MPs have given themselves twelve to twenty thousand dollars worth of raises. Um, most of our public servants will make more, regardless how much money we have to borrow. And it's really good that everybody's focused on their mental health short term. But with climate change and and our terrible health in this province is not the fault of the doctors and nurses or the allied health professionals. It's because of the individual choices we all make and the damage that we're doing to the environment. Like people got to take their heads out of the sand and realize it's like a crisis, like on all these levels, like it's emergencies and everybody's planning their trip. No offense. Everybody wants to plan their trip, but we are paying people more money. We can afford to pay them so they can afford to go on the trips. And we don't have doctors and nurses because they want to go on trips. And understandably so, but everybody in the economy is important, whether it's the person who makes your coffee or the person who orders the blood test or does the test or drives the taxi and picks up the tourist who we rely on for a billion dollars worth of year of revenue. All that stuff is related, and it's important, and nobody gets to put their head in the sand. And if every, everybody has got to take their heads out of the sand on every level, and it's not the politicians only, they are only going to do what we ask them to do, what we demand them to do, what we've threatened to 
picket or not elect them. They're only going to do what we demand that they do. And until everybody realizes that on all four fronts in this province, we all are failing, all of us collectively, because we're only as good as the collective. And right now, everywhere I look, as a business owner, as a person who's very involved on all levels of all these really key things, we are failing like so badly and failing ourselves, failing our children, failing our grandchildren. And it's so upsetting. And I don't know how everybody keeps on keeping on focused on all the wrong things that are all destroying our, our planet, our personal health, our financial health, our futures. And we've lost sight. Our grandparents would roll over in the graves. Tom, I appreciate your time as usual this morning. I went on holidays because I paid for the trip back in 2019, and it was going to burn. The West Jet was going to burn my money, so I decided to hop on their aircraft. I uh, have the same situation with a $3,000 credit with a cruise ship. I will never go on a cruise ship ever again. Not in good conscience, and neither should anybody else. No offense to the cruise industry, the travel <laughs> industry. It's difficult, but you know what? That's life. Money spent. It's gone. Appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Let's uh, take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, where am I going there, David? Am I going to th- one? Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. I'm not so sure we've ever spoken on this program, have we? Uh, we have not. Okay, well, welcome, and it's good to have you on. Finally, we used to, well, of course, I've spoke with the association many, many times over the years on all the very serious matters in cel- inside the healthcare system, nursing vacancies, and otherwise. But where would you like to start this morning, Yvette? Uh, well, I guess the first thing I would like to talk about is the ER closures and what we're hearing in the media each day with public service announcements from the like, the RHAs, mm-hmm. the Regional Health Authority. Uh, and I know um, the Conagra Peninsula right now, Harbour Breton, um, they're on, um, I think it's virtual ER today. It could be a closure tomorrow, an ER closure tomorrow, which we've seen in the past. And we also know there's a fire there now, which is heightening the concerns of staff and of the people of the communities. Um, and they more than likely, I'm um, following the news, hopefully they'll be able to get a path out so people can drive out, even though it is almost a three-hour drive, I believe, to Grand Falls uh, Emergency Room if they need it. And we're probably looking at people being airlifted out. So kudos, uh, to thank you to the firefighters who are working tirelessly uh, right now. But we do know that this is heightening the stress and frustration of the residents of Newfoundland and Labrador with the daily closures or diversions or virtual ERs. Yeah, they're actually escorting traffic uh, when possible through that uh, close 40 to 60 kilometers worth, and it must be scary to be cut off from the rest of the province. Yvette, I know there's not a one-size-fits-all here or one simple answer, but to your knowledge, what's driving some of these diversions and closures and need for virtual? Is it simply because of a permanent vacancy with one healthcare professional or another, or is it... uh, people off with COVID as we saw they were in the hundreds at one one moment in time so what's driving these things in your opinion well there's a number of factors uh one is the loss of physicians in permanent uh, positions in rural Newfoundland uh one is nursing shortage we presently have over 600 uh RN vacancies here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and one is you know we're bringing forth solutions 
Uh, we're talking to government, having discussions since we had our nursing think tank back in early April. Uh, you know, we're hoping to make some announcements soon for the short term. But one of the things that we are seeing is the lack of primary health care providers. So nurse practitioners or, or uh, physicians in rural Newfoundland, not just rural, but it's also in urban Newfoundland. We, you know, we have 125,000 people now who do not have a health care provider. And, uh, you know, we're pushing government uh, that we need some solutions in the short term. Uh, but we also need to look at utilizing nurse practitioners to help fill in the gap with uh, primary health care providers. And it's just a lack of health HR planning. It's a lack of human resource planning. For years and years and years, we've been talking about the aging uh, population in Newfoundland and Labrador. We've been talking about the aging workforce. And I heard one of your callers and you were talking about uh, flexibility in the workplace and more work-life balance. And we need to meet people where they are at. We have members who, because of childcare reasons, um, cannot work permanent full-time. So they're going casual uh, so that they can provide childcare for their own children. There's so many factors involved that, you know, we need broad-based discussions and solutions. Let's talk the short-term and long-term. Some of the medium and long-term issues, maybe with the $100,000 bonus for three years as a family doctor with a full patient roster, that's a carrot. There's the potential for uh, the additional five seats that the government has taken over at Munns Med School to make it 65 out of 80 seats based on New Brunswick not funding them any longer. Long-term, good, good move. The short term seems to be in a full reliance on the establishment of the, uh, the collaborative care clinic, which sounds like it should absolutely work. You walk in, you see the healthcare professional you need. But unless these are new entrants into the world, as opposed to moving a, a GP from Mount Pearl to Monday Pond Road, that doesn't fill any gaps. So when you talk short term, what is it? So some of the short term solutions uh, that we have been talking about with government, which um, our members and management uh, in the system uh, came up with solutions, and some of them are flexible scheduling, allowing people to self-schedule so that they have more autonomy over their work life and their personal life, granting people time off. We have had people in the past two years who have had only one or two days of vacation. And I know that this summer as well, we are struggling to get people vacation, um, another solution is to show and acknowledge the work that people are doing in the system. We need to retain the registered nurses and nurse practitioners we have in the system because we have another 900 eligible to retire. We only graduated, I think it was 203 registered nurses last year. So already 600 vacancies, we are not keeping up. So we need to retain the people we have in the system, and we need to recruit new people in the system. And be it, you know, meeting them where they're at, looking at child care options, talking with government about that, um, looking at recruitment uh, bonuses or retention bonuses, uh, looking at supporting nursing students and internationally educated nurses that are coming into the system. Uh, it, refresh my memory, Yvette, in the most recent provincial budget, there was some attention given to investing in and expanding the number of seats at nursing schools. What were those numbers? 
So government announced a 25% increase to the seats of the schools of nursing. They also announced um, 42 seats for internationally educated nurses so that they could meet regulatory requirements here in Newfoundland and Labrador. These are long-term measures. Uh, The seats for schools of nursing uh, will not be starting until September. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking four to five years out. That's a long-term measure. Yeah, and many of these, you know, as much as we would all like to see, me and you and just about everyone listening, we'd like to see it all improved immediately. That's why I reach out to people in the know who have, uh, you know, intimately familiar with what's happening, uh, what they view as a short-term solution. Because the long-term, I think we can all put our heads together and come up with some long-term applications that should make things better. But it's dealing with 125,000 people without a GP today. It's dealing with the hundreds of nurse vacancies. I know it's a positive move. The government is looking at bringing nurse practice practitioners into MCP, but that's an immediate thing that could absolutely help people. So I don't know why we haven't moved quicker on some of these things that seem to be dangling right in front of us. I may oversimplify these things, and people should uh, correct me when I'm wrong on that front, but there seems to be a couple of different moves we can make that could ease the burden somewhat. It's not going to solve all the issues. It's not going to get everyone family doctor. It's not going to reduce every wait time, emergency room, or otherwise, but it can make things better today. Well, we've been talking about this and asking government to come to the table and talk about a funding model for nurse practitioners so that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador can go see a nurse practitioner and not have to pay out of their pockets. That should never be happening. We should have some kind of formula system, pay model, whatever, so that nurse practitioners can set up clinics, be it in the collaborative care clinics or a clinic on their own, and try to help fill the void for the 125,000 people who do not have anybody to go to, to even get a prescription refill. Right. Well, Anyways, we do have a meeting tomorrow okay. with the Minister Osborne to discuss nurse practitioners. And we look forward to getting a follow-up conversation with you. Welcome uh, to the show as the first-time caller today. Yvette will certainly be speaking with me. I appreciate your time. look forward to our next chat. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Yvette Coffey. She's the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. But just like in every discipline in healthcare, maximize the scope of practice based on training and accreditation can certainly be helpful. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, appreciate Bert's patience. He was the victim of a robbery. We'll find out about what right after this. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Bert, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Bert. Hi, Doma. Best guy on to you. Go right ahead. What's on your mind? Uh, can't hear him. Worth the Darren Dave. We're going to have to put him on hold, Dave, and see if we can reestablish a better connection. What do you think? Okay, let's do that because we want to hear what the man has to say. But at this moment of time, can't. Let's see if we can get Elaine on for Elaine. You're on the air. Oh, hello. Hi, yeah. Hi, good morning. Good morning to you. Um, just calling now. I called in the other day, but I couldn't get through. Uh, fishery salt. The packaging. We bought fishery salt last... Well, we buy it every year, obviously. Yeah. I'm surprised no one has uh, complained about it or talked about it or whatever. Last year, a 34 kilogram. Uh, fishery salt was approximately $12. This year, 
The packaging has gone down to 20 kilograms. The price has gone up. Like, what is that all about? It's an excellent question, but I think if you were speaking to a farmer and they'd ask you, why is it the same way with my fertilizer? If you're speaking to other industries, they'll say the packaging is smaller, I'm paying more, what the hell is going on? And there's no simple answer. But shouldn't, shouldn't companies be, like, controlled to say they, they cannot do that? I can understand the packaging going down, but I can't understand the price going up. Like this year, we found that, that, well, we did find one place that was um, basically the same price as last year, but still the packaging was gone down to 20 kilograms. I mean, you're talking about 14 kilograms less that you're paying the same price for. What is going on? You'll ask one person, they'll say, well, a supply chain issue. And, you know, that seems to be the rationale offered for a lot of shortages and for inflation and for cost of living issues, specifically with fishery salt. I don't know. Do you happen to know where the salt comes from? I certainly do. Okay. I'm allowed to say. Sure. Uh, The Avalon Company in Bay Roberts. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, not about the retailer, because I know Avalon Fish Salt is a company that I even know who they are. But do you happen to know where the product that's in the package comes from? I can't answer that. Okay, I was just curious if you happen to know or not. That's something I can try to figure out. Uh, That's Outdoor Pros. Uh, Let's see if we can connect with them, because we tried to connect with a fertilizer uh, distributor, distributor, and we couldn't make heads or tails out of the rationale that they were offering, but we do know that it's had an explosion in price, and access has been very, very difficult. I'm not so sure what the background reason is behind the uh, increased price of salt. I really don't know, but there's something we can see if Avalon Fish Salt would like to comment on it. Yeah, and you know, we've, not only with the, with the salt, but we've noticed over the past few years, like you get a, a package of bacon that's 500 kilograms, eh, 500 kilograms, sorry, 500 grams, gone down 375, 400. Yep. You know, a block of cheese gone from 500 to 375, 400. And take this one, purity hard bread. I'm sure that everybody has had it sometime gone from 12 cakes in a package down to nine like i don't i don't know what the reasoning is i'm not so sure but it uh, it all adds up to more expensive for me and you elaine i appreciate the time we'll yeah. drop off a note to the uh, fish salt crowd and see if they w- can tell us what's happening perfect appreciate this yep thank you, you. Bye. Take care. bye-bye all right let's take a break for the news uh, off the top of the program we talked about the fact that we're seeing a big rise in family homelessness here I'm not even sure I've heard that as a term in the past. We know it's absolutely been happening in the past. But Laura Winters is the CEO of Stella Circle. We'll hear from her about what's going on on the ground. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Well, we spoke to many times, including off the top of the program this morning. The lack of availability, affordability, two of the major problems facing the housing crunch and folks affected by the housing crunch here in the metro region. Join us on line number two is the CEO at Stella's Circle. That's Laura Winters. Good morning, Laura. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Really appreciate you making time. 
Oh, thank you. Thanks for having this conversation. Happy to do it. You know, we talk about how it impacts students come the fall of the year. We talk about how it impacts seniors and the whole broad range associated with affordable housing. But now you're seeing a different demographic being affected more and more. Family homelessness. I'm not even sure I've heard that term in the past. What are you seeing? So I think this is one trend amongst many trends that we're seeing right now with homelessness that just really points to the fact that we are in a a housing crisis in this province. So Stella Circle is an organization that works a lot around housing. We run the Naomi Center Shelter for Young Women. We run the Brian Martin Housing Resource Center here in Rollins Cross, and we operate 79 units of affordable housing. Um, We're actually the largest provider of affordable housing in the community sector. And what our staff on the ground are seeing is what you said, those issues of availability and affordability. The folks that we work with are folks who are on a fixed income. They're on income support that those rates haven't risen in years. So they're not able to keep up with the changes in rent. And so we're seeing more and more homelessness. And one of the trends that we have been seeing is families who are experiencing homelessness. This is not something that we saw um, at the rates that we currently are in this city before. And it's not just our agency. This is very much across the sector. I know our friends over at Homestead another community organization are doing really great work with some of those families but um, I know in talking to other folks in the sector I believe it's around 12 families since May have experienced homelessness in St. John's just not uh, the numbers that we're used to seeing around this issue of families who are experiencing homelessness. The issues that have driven the affordability issue and the availability issue, they're varied, I suppose. Maybe land uh, landlords saw strong home prices and cashed out. Maybe some of the long-term rentals have been converted to Airbnbs. There's a variety of things that happen. But sometimes I really get the distinct feeling, whether I'm talking with Doug Pawson at End Homelessness St. John's or speaking with your organization, not enough people really understand just how prevalent and prominent the homelessness issue is. Because unlike, say, for instance, in Toronto, you can walk the city streets and you can see the impacts of homelessness. You'll see the pictures coming from uh, Los Angeles and California. Here, maybe not as much, but we also have to include folks who are in precarious positions, couch surfing, one paycheck away from being homeless. People don't seem to realize just how big and prevalent the problem it is. Paint the picture, as stark as it might be, Laura. Yeah, thanks. You've hit the nail on the head there, Patty. I think historically we've had a shelter system that has been able to keep up with the rates of homelessness in our city. And what we're seeing now is that's not the case. So our shelter system, the beds that we do have available to people experiencing homelessness are just beyond capacity. We've got folks who, um, you know, they're going into hotels um, and the province is paying for that. And we've got folks who are, you're right, sleeping on the street. I rode into work there the other morning and saw somebody uh, in a tent just down the road. So, and we're seeing in the news that folks, you know, are camping in Pippi Park and in different places and accessing what they can, where they can. And you're right, the conditions that have led to this are varied. And what we're seeing is that the impact of the pandemic obviously has hit us all. The cost of living has hit us all. But those who are most impacted are the folks who are most marginalized amongst us, those who are already struggling from paycheck to paycheck or already struggling on income support. And now, you know, the folks that are working 
work in Frontline here at Stella Circle said they're just seeing so many people choosing between paying their power bill, putting groceries on the table, and maybe having a cell phone to be able to do housing searches. So these are hard decisions to make in, in terms of how you're going to support yourself. Then you see stories where someone has a basement apartment for rent, I believe it was in Paradise, and 400 people wanted to come view it. I've never heard the like, and I've, I have friends who are landlords for a number of decades, never seen or heard the like as well. You know, sometimes, but also I think gets a bit lost in the shuffle, is that affordable housing is a real catch-all phrase. When in fact, affordable housing for a senior, someone with mental health concerns, for small families, for immigrants, for newcomers from outside of the metro region, it has a different flair or feel for all these different circumstances, but yet we all just say affordable housing. I think if we attend to affordable housing, quote unquote, we solve the problem. How How much more complex is it? Because unless we understand the difference in affordable, safe, uh, housing for seniors versus someone with mental health issues versus someone below working below the poverty line. How complex is it and how does that derail the conversation sometimes? Right. So there's affordable housing, which is housing that is, you know, above or below a certain rate of rent. There's also supportive housing, which is housing that has supports built in for people who might need a person on site 24-7 to be able to live successfully or someone who might need somebody coming and checking in on them once a week to be able to maintain successful housing. So there's different types of housing uh, in the community sector. And I think what we're seeing right now, though, you know, there's always a need for more supports in the community, but it's this affordability issue. Um, and when you, what, exactly what you just said, so there's an apartment for rent, there's 400 folks lined up outside that apartment. There's a huge amount of stigma that our participants are facing and that people across the community sector face uh, when they're in receipt of income support when they're struggling um, with issues around mental health or issues around addiction. And so, unfortunately, when landlords have a huge choice of people to rent to, sometimes stigma plays a role and the folks that are attached to the community sector aren't getting those apartments. We're also seeing issues with um, the system not being able to respond fast enough. So, for example, if I'm on income support and I show up to rent an apartment, it might take a bit of time for the system to process and get my uh, first month's rent and damage deposit and if the person in line behind me has that cash in hand they're probably getting that apartment so I know that the frontline workers here at Stella Circle working around housing and around homelessness are finding it really challenging right now to find affordable safe apartments for the people that access our services. The stigma is real. The most recent survey from the City of St. John's showed that 53% of landlords do not want to offer affordable housing a variety of reasons. The fear of damages being caused and complex medical concerns for some of the tenants possibly or whatever the rationale is behind those landlords, 53% of them. In addition to that, uh, I think there was 250 respondents. Only three of them have accessible units. Mm -hmm. So we've got a long row to hoe here. People talk about, you know, government spending and government intervention in the world of housing. And housing is a right, not a privilege. We have to make sure people have a safe place to live. Paint the financial picture. I know we're talking about a moral compass here. I know we're talking about a societal issue, but sometimes people need to boil it back to dollars and cents. If we do not do more quicker to provide affordable housing and or accessible units, then we perpetuate a problem which costs us money. It doesn't just cost us societally. It costs more and more money the more we turn deaf ears and blind eyes at this issue. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. It costs a lot less to house somebody than it does to have them be in the shelter system. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, irregardless of the human cost, which is huge, the actual financial cost behind this shows that investment in affordable housing and affordable housing run by the community sector, uh, who can be tolerant landlords, who can provide the support on site is what's so very important here. And just coming back again to that issue of stigma, it is so very real. And I think for landlords, um, the reality of the situation is it's actually a good move to rent to somebody who's attached to community supports. Um, somebody who's on income support and that rent is going to come automatically into your bank account. There's many advantages actually to renting to folks who are attached to the community sector um, versus renting to somebody in the private market where these pieces aren't in place and you don't have someone to call if there's a challenge with the, with somebody in your unit. Um, so I think that stigma piece, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I want to just come back again to what you said. Housing is a basic human right. Um, we work from a housing first philosophy that says everyone deserves a roof over their head. And in fact, I mean, step back and think about it. It's very difficult to work on or accomplish anything in your life without that very basic need met. Um, The other piece I'd point to here is the need for lived expertise being at the center of any policy or solution. So we need to listen to the voices of people who've experienced homelessness. They're the experts here. They're the ones out navigating the system. And it's not an easy system to navigate. They're the ones with the expertise um, that can help us as a community and as a city, as a province move forward and meet the needs of those folks who are are so very challenged uh, by the housing market right now. It's a challenge to say the very least. Would you like to offer anything else, Laura, while we have you this morning? I think just for folks listening to know that there are supports available in the community sector, our Brian Martin Housing Resource Centers here on Rollins Cross. It's open every afternoon for walk-in housing help, um, and we're just one of many community organizations that are doing the work here on the ground. So also shout out to all the folks doing this frontline work um, across the community sector in what is really, I think, the most challenging time I've ever seen in my career around housing and homelessness. Keep up the good work, Laura. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Laura Winters. She's the CEO at Stella's Circle. And I mean, there's a mouthful. Sometimes in healthcare and things like homelessness and what have you, it kind of feels like I'm doing the conversation a disservice when you start to bring dollars and cents into it. But ultimately, it comes back to that type of conversation as much as it feels a little bit abhorrent to be saying, oh my God, you cost me so much money. Laura said it. It's more expensive to have individuals in the shelter system than it is into a community-operated affordable housing unit. Sometimes that's all we need to know. And then move on past the fact that homelessness will obviously bring upon some complex medical concerns. Maybe, maybe, and this is not to promote or to uh, make the stigma even worse, maybe more interaction with criminal justice. And as we know, the two most expensive things in this world in this country, a night in the hospital, a night in the clink. It's more expensive to be in the shelter system than it is to a community-operated, affordable, available housing unit. Let's go ahead and take a break. Coming up this Saturday, the 30th of July, probably the most visually stunning event of the summer is the Lantern Festival. The festival coordinator is Nathan Butt. He's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, as I said, upcoming on Saturday, July 30th in historic Victoria Park is this year's Lantern Festival. They're back. Joining us on line number three is one of the coordinators. That's Nathan Butt. Good morning, Nathan. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Patty. Welcome to the show, sir. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to um, 
get in touch and let the community know about the exciting things that we have coming up this weekend. Um, so first, we got a couple important announcements. So due to the fire ban, uh, we want everyone to be safe, and so we're going to have a flameless festival this year, mm-hmm. um, which means that we are looking to the community for donations. Um, if anyone has any battery-operated lights or, like, the mini flashlights, um, some people have those, like, battery-operated uh, Tea lights as well. We're accepting donations of any kind at any time. Just bring them down to the pool house here at Victoria Park um, and someone will take them off your hands. Um, you know, we're also looking for volunteers. So uh, this is the first festival in a couple of years now. So we're having uh, a couple of rough patches getting uh, volunteers filled, um, particularly for the barbecue tent. Uh, so we're reaching out and to small sports teams or to small community groups. Um, if anyone wants to volunteer at the festival, it's a great opportunity. Um, not only that, but Alt Hotel St. John's has donated a one-night stay um, to the festival, which is going to be raffled out to the volunteers who apply. So it's a great opportunity to get back to the community, um, flip some burgers, you know, at the, the barbecue tent, and uh, help out. And it's an extraordinary festival. It really is. And I'll tell you what, you know, if you want to see smiles on people's faces and awe in the eyes of especially the children that I've seen attend the festival, it's beautiful. It really, truly is. So I hope you can get some of these uh, spots filled for the volunteers. I, I do some work in minor and amateur sports. I will run this up the food chain to see if any of those teams that I that I deal with might take it on because that's a great idea as opposed to yeah, individuals. You know, you get a, want to volunteer. Yeah. Um, they can just reach out to uh, our Facebook page or um, our Instagram. You can message or just email us at lanternfest at gmail.com. Are you still doing some workshops for building and making the lanterns and the yes, like? That's our another uh, big announcement. Uh, okay. we, our last <laughs> workshop is tonight. Normally, uh, it would be the Thursday before the festival, but because of the fire ban, we need Thursday night to retrofit all of our lanterns with flameless lights. Um, so unfortunately, it's, uh, today is going to be our last workshop, but folks can come down 6 to 9. Um, we'll be here. You can help make your own uh, lanterns and see all the stuff that we're working on. Um, also, if folks have uh, lanterns from previous workshops, they can come pick them up tonight or on Thursday night as well. Even though there's no workshops, you can absolutely come pick up your lanterns. Um, and on the, you noted uh, how the kids love it, and I wanted to point out to everyone that um, Lantern Fest is a very community-driven event, and um, it's the primary fundraiser for the summer camp that runs out of our pool house. Um, and on that note, I'd also like to point out that our day camp still has spaces. I know earlier you had a caller who mentioned um, the shortage of childcare uh, currently. Well, we still have spaces in our day camp for all of August, um, and it's only $75 a week. Um, and that's due in part due to the festival being such a big fundraiser for our summer camp. What ages do you serve in the day camps? Uh, sorry, uh, ages are 5 to 12. Okay. Uh, a wide range. And so there's there's more to it than simply the, the spectacle at dusk and into the night. There's also day of activities, which I think would be of interest to folks. And it's so nice to see Victoria Park be reinvigorated here over the last number of years. You know, it was kind of getting away from us. Now it's beautiful once again, as it deserves to be. So what else is happening on the day of? 
Yeah, so you make, you make a very great point. So um, I'd just like to touch on the fact that the park is a fair bit more accessible now because a lot of the trailways have been paved. There's been some landscaping. So you're absolutely correct. It's a beautiful park with a beautiful new monument down in the lower portion as well. Um, and during the day, there's be lots of festivities for folks to take in and enjoy. Um, there's live music all throughout the afternoon. So we have three solo performances um, and three bands playing after that followed by our yearly procession. Um, so the belly dancers, the neighborhood strays always do a performance. And following that, the uh, grun- the drum group, uh, the scrunchins, leads a procession up to the top of the hill. Um, and the top of the hill is where, you know, the huge spectacle is. That's where we'll have our giant lantern installations. Um, and folks can sit on the sledding hill, um, which acts as a natural amphitheater over the ball field. Um, and that's where we normally would have a fire show, but of course, in light of the fire ban, um, it'll be just a regular, I say regular, it'll be a stunning acrobatics and juggling uh, display. And it'll be well lit, so folks will still be able to see it. Great stuff. The installation in the park is the 100 Portraits of the Great War by local sculptor Morgan McDonald. He does extraordinary work. People are familiar with his work in a variety of different places. One of my favorites is the rower down around Kitty Vitty. I was actually, my, my mug is in that one I was I was representing my grandfather Stephen Stephen Neri in that great the 100 portraits of the great war last one before we let you go Nathan yeah we lost uh, a real interesting and terrific knowledgeable dedicated community activist activist and advocate Simon Lono he was a driving force behind the Lantern Festival a real academic and a real deep thinker talk about the impact that Simon Lono made on the Lantern Festival yeah, absolutely. Simon's helped make so many of our beautiful big lanterns that we um, keep year to year. And starting at the last festival, we have an area of installation dedicated to the lanterns and the help that Simon has put into the festival. So uh, we call it Lono's Landing. Um, it's a small area, and, and you can see many of the lanterns that he's built uh, in that area of the park. It's wonderful stuff. Okay, it's coming up this uh, this Saturday. Uh, I think some of the activities begin around 2 o'clock. There's also some uh, continued space in the Victoria Park Day Camp. That'll be of interest and of note for many. Uh, good luck. Congratulations with the event this year. So if I want to volunteer, do I just go to your website? What do you want me to do? Yeah, you can go to the Facebook page, Lantern Fest, um, or you can email us, uh, lanternfest at gmail.com. Great to have you on, Nathan. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. It's Nathan Butt, Lantern, Lantern Festival Coordinator. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, there's a caller in the queue who wants to talk about how hot it is out there and what that means for your pets. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line four. Rod, you're on the air. Hey, how are you, Patty? Great today. How are you? Good. Well, I don't know what is wrong with the people who are out there walking their dogs. Man, they can't fix stupid people out there, can we? Why? Are you just saying it's just too hot for the dogs to be out? Yeah, it's just too hot. You know, you got 25 degrees out in here. You got a dog walking on hot pavement out there, which is probably about 30 or 40 degrees. And then here they are with the tongues curled up on wrapped around gasping for a bit of water. I don't know what's wrong with people, Patty. Yeah, one of my buddies, I was talking to him yesterday, his uh, dog, they put out a little kid pool for him, and the dog doesn't even go in lying. It just goes in and cools off the paws. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I, how would those people out there walking those dogs? I, I just see a lady out running the dog. 
coming up from uh, Newfoundland Drive, running the dog. And here she's out there with a pair of shorts on and a little old tank top. Now here you are with a dog with a 30-pound coat on and 25 degrees heat out there. That something's not registered in their paddy. Yeah, you got to be careful. I mean, the early morning walk or wait until it cools off and the sun goes down to get the dog. Because the dogs need to be active. I understand the dog walking business, but it's pretty hot out there. I understand that point, Rod, for sure. Pretty, you know, man, come on, like, you know, if you're going to take them out, wait till the evening time when it's cooled down to a certain degree. Fair advice. Pardon me? That's fair advice. I understand your point. Yeah, no, but it makes me so sick to see people out there running them dogs out there like that, right? It's awful disgusting. Most dogs, especially the long hairs with the heavy coats, are not built for this heat. No, that's for well sure, Patty. I agree with you, or any type of dog for all that matter. You know what I mean? But the poor old dogs are out there carrying this big old heavy coat on, and they are running this dog out there in this bloody heat. Man, it's, it makes you sick. It feels like you want to go over and slap, slap the person who's running the dog. How would they feel like if you took their feet and took their socks and their sneakers off and let them run up and down the floor? Point made. We'll leave it at that. A goodbye. But I appreciate the point you're making here this morning. Thank you very much, okay. Patty. Have- Same to you. Bye-bye. It is warm out there, obviously. Uh, let's go to line number three. Glenn, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you? Great, sir. How about you? This is, I'm wonderful. It's good to hear you're doing such a wonderful job. I don't listen online constantly. I'd be lying, but <laughs> when I do, there's lots of good uh, things that comes up that wouldn't be addressed if you wouldn't under. I appreciate that. Thanks, Thank, thank you. Thank you for getting back to me again. I know it's probably a couple of years, sir, pretty much since you and I spoke before about this book, uh, The Trip to the Arctic. But uh, I just wanted to call in and just to say that, like, I've been distributing my books around the community and whatever. The, the book, of course, is... Uh, the trip uh, with the, the Ocean Alliance from Whiteway in Trinity Bay down to the Northwest Passage uh, to find Franklin ships, uh, which she did find both, uh, both boats. Yeah, eh? the Erebus and the Terror. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I spent 41 days down there on, uh, looking for the first one that they found there. Um, just after I came home, they found her. And, of course, not too long after that, I think probably the next year, that they found the second one. And so, as many times as it's mentioned, and I've heard it so often, but it's never mentioned that the boat that did all the work and found those ships actually came from Newfoundland, you know? And so, my granddaughter is, I don't know what grade she's in now, but a couple of years ago when she was coming from school one day and she started talking about the Arctic, and I said, do you know that Poppy actually brought that boat down there that found Franklin ships? And she said, really? And so I told her story, whatever. And, of course, it's, it's history, right? Because it wasn't done before, and it'll never be done again because it was only a one-time thing. And because of that, of course, the, the book is in the archives in Ottawa and, of, of course, in St. John's in the archives and into the rooms as well. Anyone want to read it, right? And so I've been I've been promoting my book and selling them here and there. I'm not into it by the, for the money by no means, but it's for for you know what unfolded there, what me and the crew did to get that boat down there, right? What's the name of that vessel? The name of the boat that found the uh, that we brought down there was the Ocean Alliance, and she came from uh, Whitless Bay or Bay Bowls up there on the Southern Shore. Okay. And after they got down there, there was a guy that was in charge of uh, trying to find those Franklin ships for years by the name of Martin Bergman. 
and uh, his desire was to accomplish this for Canada because no one knew for sure if the boats were in Canadian waters or American waters for sure, right? And so for territorial rights, he wanted to find those ships. But when we left Whiteaway uh, to uh, pick him up 13 days later in Resolute, of course, in the Arctic, uh, he got killed in a plane crash flying into Resolute. And, of course, that's in the, in the book as well. But uh, I was going to say, so then when he got the boat down there, they changed the name of the boat from uh, the Ocean Alliance, of course, to the Martin Bergman, which was a wonderful uh, for his family. Eh? And so as I see people that read my book, they say, so many questions I have I'd like to ask you about because the book goes through most of it fairly quickly, like like day 15, uh, Wednesdays, uh, day 15, September 14, 4 a.m., got up again in the morning to take my watch, miserable weather, big seas, two to three meters, uh, winds about 25 to 30 knots, uh, berry water. Uh, I changed course and hid for sheltered land on the, on the, in the Lancaster Straits, and uh, now we're in Bergy Water again. So, you know, the, the, the conditions going down there in September month is not like it is here, you know what I mean? I do, and, you know, some names are popping in my head, uh, some of the early searches, uh, Roald Amundsen and Robert McClure, and I think they found the terror in a place called Terror Bay. <laughs> One they found, right? That's right, yeah, the airburst yeah. was found first in 2014. I, you, yeah. I didn't know anything about the Arctic, of course, until they, this Arctic Re- Research Foundation and Parks Canada, well, Parks Canada mainly, called me and asked me if I would bring this 65-footer from Newfoundland uh, up to the Arctic. Over 35, or over 35,000 not, or 3,500 nautical miles and in a 65 footer if you're going south it would be probably pretty good but going north you know and so many unforeseens and so I asked him you know what was involved and everything and, and the adventures part of it where I was I went to sea for the first time in 1969 but I never faced or challenged anything like I did going up there with that boat there was two times in particular that uh, we didn't know if we will see the next day or not uh, in the book there's nothing, uh, everything that happened, everything that in the book is, is as true as we could, we could put it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And as well, like, my email is on the front of the, of the book uh, starting off there. And so I would like to tell your listeners, if they would be listening today, that uh, I'm free to, uh, you know, if you want to call me sometime or if you want to email me, uh, you know, to give them some more information because, like, we could carry a lot of extra fuel on the trip, of course, because, when, you know, I think our first fueling station was, like, oh, my goodness, a week away at least, eh? And the next one probably four days away, you know, and this, that's just the way it was in the Arctic, right? And uh, so we took extra fuel, but we had such a storm that came upon us a few days before we reached uh, our, our, our waypoint, which was on the most farthern uh, western uh, end of uh, Baffin Island, then we had to go all the way into uh, uh, into uh, a different bay altogether and 24 hours to get fuel and back out again, you know? And so, you know, it was, it was, it was quite a trip, I'm going to tell you, right? Well, name of the book and your email address if folks would like more info, Glenn? Yeah, the name of the book is Voyage of the Ocean Alliance from Whiteway Trinity Bay to Cambridge Bay on Victoria Island, of course, in the Northwest, in the, in the Northwest Territories. And 
like the books are available like in the stores around here, certainly here in Dildo. And I'd like to add, they got a new uh, restaurant opened in the at the Dildo Dory now. They got a breakfast downstairs, uh, probably about a week ago. And anyone anyway, looking for a good place for breakfast, I would recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, some of the stories associated with the aftermath of the wreckage too. You know, of course, the hypothermia, starvation, and there's all a bit about cannibalism and that kind of stuff. It's just such a. Unbelievable story, the entirety of the Sir John Franklin expedition through the Northwest Passage. I appreciate you uh, touching base with the show again, Glenn. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, Patty, I just wanted to just say one thing here. Like, there's sure. a second ship that they found, eh? Yeah. Uh, they had a permit, like this uh, Parks Canada and the uh, Research Foundation had a partnership, of course, and they had a permit to search on one side of uh, King William's Island. And they were searching there for years, and I mean many, many years. You know, probably know part of the story, right? But anyway, so uh, uh, they had this trip out, and this crew member that they picked up in Cambridge Bay, just you know, to be uh, you know good stewards in the area. Uh, he said to the first mate on the way in from the, from the trip, he said, uh, "You know, you're searching in the wrong area for that ship, eh?" And so they said, "How so?" And he said, "Well, about eight years ago, I took a picture." of uh, a mast sticking up through the ice over on the other side of uh, King William's Island. And so they said, well, how come you didn't come forward with this before? And he said, well, lost my camera, didn't think anyone would believe me. So to make a long story short, uh, they went in and geared up, and this guy went with them. And right where he took took them to, uh, she was sitting in 30 meters of water, just like the day she sank. Which is back in 1845, I think, 1845. Long time ago, yeah. I really appreciate this, Glenn. i got to get off to the break, sir, but you're always welcome. Okay, thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and it took years, three, four, five years before they even went out to look for Franklin and the wreckage itself. And that was driven by his wife. I believe her name was Jane, Lady Jane Franklin. Uh, anywho, let's take our final break in the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line number one. Bill, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Patty. Hi, Bill. Uh, Patty, uh, just something I'm wondering. Uh, I'm a tractor-trailer driver. I'm brand new at it. only been at it a month, driving back and forth across the island. And... Uh, Oh, excuse me, my buddy just passed by, honk the horn. Uh, so, uh, I've been noticing there, there's, a, there's a woman, an elderly woman, walking, always walking. And is, I've seen her as far east as almost Clarenville. And this morning, she was just east of Grand Falls. I've seen her in the park, daytime, nighttime. She's, she's wearing a, a heavy winter coat with the hood up all the time with a, with a green safety vest. No backpack, no bag for food, nothing. I, I don't know if anybody knows her story. Um, who she is, none of my business, I guess. But, I mean, how she's doing, I guess, is probably everyone's business. I don't know if there's anything wrong or or if anyone's been notified about anything. Is she putting herself in a dangerous spot? I mean, walking alongside the highway is always risky, to say the least. But is she doing something that makes you worried for her? Well, no, just, just being out here alone, just... And, and she's not walking fast or anything. She's just a slow shuffle, just just a shuffle. Sometimes she's sitting on a guardrail or I don't know where she spends the night. I guess maybe in the ditch on the side of the road or something. Oh, but, my. You know, and, and there's no backpack or anything, like there's no tent or or, or anything like that. It's just, just I didn't know if there was anything wrong or, or if anybody. I'm sure thousands and thousands of people have seen her because... I'm back and forth across the island several times a week, and I see her every time. I don't know, and I'm, I 
I'm trying to think about whether or not I've ever seen her. Have you ever considered, and I don't know if it's possible without doing what you do for a living, have you ever considered stopping to ask her, see how she's doing? Yes, I have, but uh, a lot of cases where I've seen her, there's, there's no way to pull in a, a big rig, right? You're, yeah, you're okay. Solar. And uh, also, well, I'm not allowed to take passengers and, and stuff like this, but I'd, I'd like to be able to talk to them, see, I mean, even to offer them a bit of food or something, you know, or... Like I said, maybe someone knows the story. Maybe it's just none of our business. It's just something this, this person wants to do. But uh, like I said, I mean, there's dangers out there. There's, I'm sure she got a drink, so she's probably drinking out of a brook. If she falls in, something could happen. There's, I saw coyotes. I saw bears, moose, and, you know. Well, guaranteed someone listening to the program this morning knows exactly who you're talking about, maybe knows her, her uh, themselves. And if they yeah. want to fill us in and, and tell us what they know, I'm happy to take it. And I don't think you're coming across as anybody uh, other than someone who's uh, concerned with what you see. And hopefully that everything's okay with this particular person. I don't see anything wrong with it. And I bet you someone's going to send me an email today telling me the story. Okay, that'd be wonderful. Nice to be kept updated. Like I said, uh, it, it's just too. it would be too bad if something happened and... and I never said anything or made anyone aware or, or something, you know. Yeah, well, I'm glad you called here this morning. And if I hear any more about it, I'll probably give you a shout-out here on the show. We can have a chat and I'll fill you in. Okay, you don't, you don't have any reporters out that way? You could just run by or anything, or I guess? Or. I don't know if we have anybody who can take that on. Where did you see her most recently? Uh, actually, I saw her this morning uh, just, just east of Grand Falls. That was about... Uh, uh, hold on, I'll check my log book. Uh, that was probably about uh, nine nine o'clock or so, eight or nine o'clock this morning. Leave it with me. See what I can find out. All right. Well, thanks, Patty. Thanks, Bill. All the best. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, let's go to line number five. Judy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great, Judy. How about you? I'm very well, thank you. I was calling to let uh, you know and the listeners that we're having a large uh, book sale in Carboneer this weekend in support of our public library. And there are a number of other events that are going on uh, that people would enjoy. And we've done a lot of new repairs and upgrades in Carboneer. Our, our Water Street is getting quite exciting. But anyways, our, our book sale is uh, this coming Saturday, July 30th. Uh, it is from 10 to 4. It is in Senior Center, which is 163 Water Street, right next to Honda Town. Uh, we've got tons of books, puzzles, DVDs, CDs, you name it, we've got it. Is, and we'd love to have people come out and join us. Is this all coming from the library, so you're restocking the shelves? Uh, no, we do have books that we do discard from the library, which would be part of the sale, but this year we've asked for donations, and we've just been totally overwhelmed. It's been wonderful. And we've got so many different things that we don't carry in the library in great amounts. So we're really looking forward to seeing people out. Wonderful selection of children's books and Newfoundland books. So, yes. And probably at a reasonable price. Uh, very reasonable price. Our, our soft covers are a dollar. Our hard covers are two dollars. Children's books are fifty cents. Uh, puzzles for a dollar to two fifty, depending on the size. So yes, a lot of wonderful things to see. Terrific, Judy. So it's happening. I think you said this Saturday at the Senior Center on Water Street. That is right. One sixty-three Water Street from ten to four. Thanks for this, Judy. Okay, thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line number two. Marie, you're on the air. Good morning. I just wanted to agree with the uh, gentleman that called earlier about the dog walking. It is like dinner time's 12 o'clock noon, and you know, um, 
two, three o'clock, it's really hot for a little pause. I think they should either take them early in the morning or after supper when it cools down. Fair enough. I bet you a lot of people agree with that. And, you know, it is yeah. awfully warm out there. It and it's not fit warm. for man nor beast. Well, that's true. Days. That's true, yeah. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. I'm glad you said it, Marie. Thanks and for the time. have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, people will give that some consideration, I suppose. All right, uh, let's see here. One final check-in on the Twitter box. Wherever you see them open line, you know what to do. Comment on the show, which you're apt to do. You're always welcome to do exactly that. About the conversation you're here, maybe bring up subjects that would be of interest to you and maybe of others. You want me to take this one too, Dave? Okay. Okay, very quickly, let's go to line number one. Peggy, you're on the air. Yeah, Petty, it's uh, Peggy Bartlett. I'm calling from Grand Falls, Windsor, and I'm also with the status of women. If there's a concern about somebody out there that needs help or anything, don't hesitate. I'm going to give you a number really quickly, 489-8919. is the status number, and my cell number is 486-0714. We can get somebody there if there's an urgency or a need or whatever. So if you could get that out to listeners, people are traveling. They all have cell phones now, so... You know, I've not seen the lady, and I've done a bit of traveling, but please, I encourage someone to call those two numbers. Yeah, if someone knows the lady and there is any concerns to share with the status right. of women, 489-8919 is the office number, and Peggy Bartlett's cell phone number is 486-0714. Perfect. Thanks, and have a great day. You too, Peggy. All the best. Okay. All, All right, right. bye-bye. All right, there we go. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.